Representing the best in content creation, Bombpod Media. Hi, it's Ronnie from the Australian contingent of the STAT 911 crew. And I'll be knitting your knee brace while listening to STAT Shocking Traumas and Treatments. Hello, 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 Ronnie and everybody else out there in podcast land. Welcome to STAT Shocking Traumas and Treatments. Coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I am your host, Karen Wickham. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are listening. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited about today's episode. It was brought to my attention from a good friend, fellow nurse, and supporter of the show, Mary Calder. This story is about a woman by the name of Nellie Bly. I don't know if any of you have heard of her. I'm sure some have because she is such an incredible female historical figure. She was a reporter and she did undercover work. And we're talking not in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. We're talking in the 1880s. This woman was doing undercover work. And one of the most amazing things she reported was that of the goings-on in Blackwell Island, a sane asylum for women. She went 10 days under cover. She wrote an article that was then turned into a book called 10 Days in a Madhouse. And I'm going to present this incredible story to you. First of all, I have to give some shout outs. I got some great iTunes reviews. I really appreciate it, guys. First, I want to thank R. Staten, Vanessa from The Cleaning of John, Doe podcast. Go listen to that podcast. You have to. The next is from ROJ, true crime historian. I've had his promo on my show and this guy tells great historical true crime stories. Have a listen, please. Another from B. Monroe 11. Kara Kalish wrote quite a long review and all the reviews I get are really important to me. They mean the world to me. Kara Kalish put a lot of serious time into writing this review for me, so I really thank you very much, and you really enlightened me to some things too, so thank you. My next awesome review is from Hood Fantasia, then Christy Adams, 1969, and Dragonfly Girl, 99. Thank you, everybody, so much. You know how much it means to me, how it really helps out the show, and it's just great to hear from you all, so thank you very much. So, let's get on with the story of Nellie Bly and 10 Days in a Madhouse. Maybe I'll do this a little show tune style. Here's a little story about a woman named Nellie. No, I I think I'll just stop right there. (laughs) You know, I have to go off into song every once in a while. Some people like it, some people don't, but anyway, I digress. Let me tell you a little bit about Nellie Bly. I think when you know some more about her before I start the story, it makes it that much more interesting because she was one badass chick, way ahead of her time. This is one of those people, if they ask if you had five people to sit down and have dinner with, she would be one of them that I'd want. Okay, so she was born May 5th, 1864 and died at 57 years old, a young woman, on January 27th, 
1922. She came from a large, successful family, hardworking family, but ultimately very successful, from Cochrane Mills, Pennsylvania. Nellie was an interesting woman from the get-go. She started showing signs of being a feminist, lobbying for women's right as a young teen. She was an excellent writer, and her writing actually caught the eye of a respected newspaper at the time, the Pittsburgh Dispatch. She eventually became a writer for Joseph Pulitzer of the Pulitzer Prize, his newspaper, The New York World. Nellie, I think, is most recognized or remembered by her 1888 72-day trip around the world. It was a 24,000-plus mile journey, and it was the fastest ever at the time. I'd like to get more into her reporting writing career right now because she did something that I don't think most women were doing at the time. In fact, very few people were doing at the time. Is that she would go undercover to break stories, to find out what was going on there. She was fearless. She had a disposition of a very lovely, almost sweet and naive woman, but at the heart, she was a beast and she wanted to get down to business, find out what's going on in this world, eradicate cruelty and fight for women's rights. She was offered an opportunity to go undercover at Blackwell Insane Asylum in New York and she jumped on the chance to do it. So how do you prepare for something like this, especially when you've never had any communication or dealings with somebody with mental illness? The newspaper had said to her, take your time, get yourself prepared and ready, and when you are, go do it. So with a lot of deliberation, she thought, how do I infiltrate the halls of this institution? First of all, she thought I could go in via police, get herself arrested, act, excuse me for lack of better words, crazy, or she could do it more slow and insidious by going out into the community and have herself placed by friends and family. So she decided to do it that way. She thought she had some pretty good acting skills and she was gonna rely on those and her smarts to come off as a mentally unwell person. Days leading up to it, she would practice in the mirror, staring off into the distance, trying to look the part. She didn't think she was very convincing. What she decided to do was go into a women's home, like a, not quite a shelter, but a place where women without homes could stay while working until they can get themselves established. The place that she went to was called the Temporary Home for Females. She arrived without luggage or toiletries, pretty much with just 70 cents in her pocket. The rate was 30 cents a day. So she pretty much had two days to get herself committed to the hospital. She was met by a gruff and kind of unpleasant woman who was helping run the place. She said that it was really busy, and if she wanted to stay, she would have to share the room with another woman. And this worked in Nellie's favor so that she could start convincing people of her mental status. She arrived around dinner time, and this was her first introduction to life in this home and the women that resided in it. Dinner was cold, rubbery beef, boiled beef and a boiled potato served to her on a tin 
plate slammed in front of her on old wooden tables. The women sort of ate quietly and kept to themselves. It was very gloomy and depressing. After her meal, she went upstairs and sat in one of the parlors by herself and observed the other women's behaviors. She saw that they were pretty listless, quiet, would stare off into the distance and sometimes doze off. Another mistress approached her. Her name was Mrs. Stannard. She was a really nice lady and she really wanted to help the women at the house. She asked Nellie what her troubles were. Now this was when Nellie really started her acting. This is her chance to step it up. And she acted in a very peculiar manner. Mrs. Standard would ask her what her troubles were and Nellie would say, I don't have any troubles. Then she would continue on to say that she was very sad, that she was very afraid, that she didn't like any of the women in the house, that she couldn't work, wouldn't work, and didn't know what to do. Mrs. Standard tried to encourage her by saying, you need to find work, you can do this, things will get better. But Nellie continued to play the part of a woman who was kind of all over the place, happy, sad, fearful, bold, that type of thing. Her next interaction with the women were at supper time. I know I said earlier that she had eaten dinner or supper, but what I really meant is that it was lunchtime when she ate and now it was dinner time. So moving forward, she assessed the room and decided to sit down with some women that were more social in nature. And this gave her the opportunity to continue on with her role. During the meal, she was actually pretty rude and mean to people. And she would call everybody in the house crazy and scary and that she didn't like them and that they were very unpleasant. One of the ladies she sat at the table with was Mrs. Kane, a woman who was in New York about to head back to Boston. Mrs. Kane was a really nice lady who was concerned about Nellie. That night, when it came to bedtime, Nobody wanted to be in a room with Nellie, but Mrs. Kane offered. Nellie described her as a courageous and good-hearted woman. She spent many hours talking to Nellie in a gentle manner. She was trying to help her with her hair and get ready for bed, and staying in her role, Nellie refused to do so. And slowly the room began to fill up with curious women. They wanted to see the crazy lady of the house. And they expressed themselves in different ways, like, oh, poor Loon, and why she's crazy enough. One of them said she was afraid to stay in the house with a crazy lady, and another one said, she will murder us all before morning. One woman wanted to call the police right away, and the others had become quite frightened. So Nellie was doing a pretty good job at freaking everyone out. Nellie thought the best thing to do was stay awake all night. She didn't want to break cover. And also... The fact that she stayed up with her eyes awake and bulging helped reinforce this role. And it really continued to upset and worry everybody, especially her roommate. Mrs. Kane kept looking at her every couple of minutes, wondering what the heck is going to go on? What is she going to do when I'm sleeping? So this poor lady pretty much didn't sleep at all either. And she kept trying to soothe Nellie, trying to get her to fall asleep. But Nellie stayed in role and she stayed awake all night. As the night went on, she really got 
the house into an uproar. Women were screaming, having nightmares that she was going to go into the room with a knife and kill everybody. So either these women were really overdramatic, had some scary stuff happen to them in their lives, or Nellie was doing a great job at playing a role of a real psychotic, out of her mind person. And whenever anyone asked her questions about herself, she would continuously say, I don't remember, I don't remember, so that she didn't give anything up about who she was. And that's actually a pretty smart way to go about doing it. If you just continually say that you don't remember anything about your life, then there's really nothing that you can screw up on in terms of breaking cover. Come morning, Nellie was exhausted, Mrs. Kane was exhausted, and the whole house couldn't wait to get up and get out of there away from her. This is Nellie's account about what happened after breakfast. I went back to my room where I sat down moping. Mrs. Kane grew more anxious. What is to be done? She kept exclaiming. Where are your friends? No, I answered. I have no friends, but I have some trunks. Where are they? I want them. The good woman tried to pacify me by saying that they would be found in good time. She believed I was insane. How much I admired that woman's courage and kindness. How I longed to reassure her and whisper that I was not insane, and how I hoped that if any poor girl could ever be so unfortunate as to be what I was pretending to be, she might meet with one who possessed the same spirit of kindness possessed by Mrs. Ruth Kane. Nellie continued on with this throughout the day and got everybody so upset that Mrs. Stannard, the assistant matron, went to the police station and then she arrived back to the house with two big burly cops. And one of the police officers' name was Tom Bogert. When the cops got there, Nellie pretended not to see them and ignored them. And Mrs. Stannard asked her to be taken away. And one of the cops said, If she don't come quietly, I'm going to drag her through the streets. Nellie was really starting to see how the mentally unwell were treated. The kindly Mrs. Kane convinced the police and Mrs. Stannard that Nellie would leave in a peaceful manner. Only Nellie said that she was too afraid to go to the station alone, so Mrs. Stannard agreed to accompany her. Nellie didn't have to act much on the way to the police station. She was fearful and trembling because this was starting to get really serious now. She was a little nervous going there for another reason because she had met the captain of the police station days prior doing another story, so she was afraid that he would recognize her and blow her cover. Thankfully, that didn't happen. So when the officers started to question her about where she came from and what her story was, Nellie just kept repeating, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I remember, but I have some trunks that need to be found. Please help me with that. The police agreed to help her, but first they told her that she would have to stand before a judge. And his name was Judge Duffy. Thankfully, he was a really nice man who treated her fairly and justly and compassionately. He really felt for Nellie. He even went as far to say that she reminded him of his daughter. So Nellie kept up with her charade and had everyone pretty much convinced that she was insane and she felt kind of bad about it because some people were being really nice to her. So the judge was convinced that Nellie had been drugged, possibly by Belladonna. Belladonna is a drug also known as deadly nightshade. So it has some great uses in modern and traditional medicine for IBS, motion sickness, and to use as an analgesic. But 
It doesn't take much for it to become a poison, and it is very deadly. A person who uses too much belladonna can have bad hallucinations that can last for days, out-of-body experiences, weakness, loss of balance, blurred vision, racing heart, confusion, delirium, convulsions, and death. So it was kind of a popular way of poisoning people, but if you didn't have too much, you could come across as the word of the day, crazy. Judge Duffy really wanted to help Nellie, but because she had no money, no known family or friends, he had no other option other than to have her sent to the notorious Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital to be assessed and then likely to be sent to Blackwell's Island and a sane asylum for women. Blackwell's Island is kind of like the Alcatraz of psychiatric hospitals. And this is what the judge said upon his judgment. Here is a poor girl who has been drugged, explained the judge. She looks like my sister, and anyone can see that she's a good girl. I am interested in the child, and I would do as much for her as if she were my own. I want you to be kind to her, he said to the ambulance surgeon. Next, she had an examination by the doctor. Nellie was very nervous because she thought the physician would see right through her game. And he did not. He stated that he felt that she had been indeed drugged with belladonna. I find this very interesting because the telltale physical signs of belladonna poisoning are dilated pupils, flushed face, racing heart, very dry mouth, that kind of thing. So I think it just shows how easy and willing they are to write things off as mental illness or drug overdoses because she didn't have any signs of that. The only sign she had would be the delirium. After this diagnosis was established, it was time to her to be taken by ambulance to Bellevue Hospital, but not without protest. She did not want to appear like she wanted to go. The doctor and Officer Bocart accompanied her, and there was a crowd of people outside the court trying to get a glimpse of the crazy lady. A few children even chased after the ambulance, yelling slurs. Now it's time to talk about Bellevue Hospital. Nellie arrived at the infamous hospital and was taken into an office to register. She refused to answer questions, so the doctor accompanying her just gave the paperwork from the judge instead. She was escorted to an area where she would wait for the boat to arrive to take her to Blackwell Island. She waited with three other women and was supervised by a nurse by the name of Nurse Ball, and there was also a maid there by the name of Mary. So now Nellie set herself up to work the room. She had made it this far, and now she just had to continue to convince everybody so that she could get on the boat to Blackwell's Asane Asylum. The first woman she met was Miss Anne Neville, and she was a chambermaid who had suffered from exhaustion, and she didn't have any money to care for herself and no family that was willing to care for her. So she was sent to Bellevue and now Blackwell's Insane Asylum because she had exhaustion. Scary stuff. She was definitely not mentally ill. She was a woman to whom society at the time locked away because they didn't know what else to do with her. When Nellie confronted her with the fact that she did not appear insane and that she shouldn't be there, she said, yes, I know, but I'm unable to do anything. The doctors refuse to listen to me and it's useless to say anything to the nurses. The second woman that Nellie met was indeed mentally ill by her estimation. The third woman she met was very quiet and would only say that she was a lost cause. She was hopeless and then she would refuse to talk any further. 
That afternoon, she was served a cold meal of stale food. It was very cold and damp, and she was shivering. She complained to the nurse, and the nurse just told her, a charity case as yourself has no right to complain. Eventually, they gave her an old and moth-eaten shawl to wear. She began to doze off, cold, shivering, hungry and exhausted, only to be rudely awakened by her shawl being ripped off her head by a gruff and unkind doctor. It was time for her second examination. He checked her vital signs, asked her a few questions, and then diagnosed her positively demented. In his words, he said, I consider it a hopeless case. She needs to be put where one will take care of her. After this second exam, she began to have an even smaller regard for the abilities of doctors than she ever had. She felt that no doctor could tell whether a person was really insane or not. Later, another woman of German descent arrived. It was unsure whether she could speak English or not. She sat sewing quietly. Another woman arrived a few hours after her, and she was young and sickly. As per this woman, she was suffering from nervous disability and had no one that could help her. At 6.15 that evening, they were told to go to bed. Nellie had to remove all of her clothes and put on a short flannel nightgown. Her clothes were put into a bundle, labeled, and taken away. Now she was locked in a cold, barred, and dark room for the night. During that night, she was seen by another doctor, and he also diagnosed her as a helpless case. She awoke the next morning exhausted, scared, and terribly cold. She was given her clothes back and served a thin broth. All the women had their nails cut down to the quick. She was seen by a fourth doctor. By now, Nellie was really good at playing insane, and she had convinced this fourth doctor of her insanity as well. She had positioned herself so that she could listen in on all the other patients' exams and heard that they had been asked the exact same questions. His procedure did not change or adapt to anybody's needs. This is what she wrote. With little variation, the examination was exactly the same as mine. All the patients were asked if they saw faces on the wall, heard voices, and what they said. I might also add, each patient denied any such peculiar freaks of sighting and hearing. Something that I found very interesting to me was that there was a constant stream of reporters interviewing the women. They said that they were there to help identify them and find their families. I don't know if that was the reason or not, but there was absolutely no confidentiality. Nellie was just worried that the reporters might recognize her. That afternoon, she was seen by a fifth doctor, Dr. Field, who was only interested to see if she had any friends or family that would take care of her. As the doctor was about to leave, one of the patients, Mrs. Tilly Mayard, discovered that she was actually in an insane ward, and she went to Dr. Field and asked him why she had been sent there. This is how the conversation went. Doctor, have you just found out that you're in an insane asylum? Mayard. Yes, my friend said they were sending me to a convalescent ward to be treated for nervous disability, from which I am suffering since my illness. I want to get out of this place immediately, doctor. Well, you won't get out in a hurry, he said with a quick laugh. Mayard, if you know anything at all, she responded, you would be able to see I am perfectly sane. Why don't you test me? Doctor, we all know what we want on that score said the doctor, and he left the poor girl condemned to an insane asylum, probably for life, without giving her one feeble chance to prove her sanity. The next day, Sunday, was a repeat of the day before. 
It was Monday when they were told they would be leaving for Blackwell Island at 1.30. They were all piled into a transport ambulance and taken to the wharf. When they reached the wharf, there was such a mob of people crowded around the wagon that the police were called to put them away so that they could reach the boat. The boat itself was filthy and smelled horrible. They were guarded by two gigantic Amazon women, and they glared at them and barked orders at the women. When they arrived at the island, they were escorted to an ambulance to take them to the asylum. Nellie asked a brutish attendant who was crushing her arm where she was, and they answered, Blackwell's Island, an insane place where you'll never get out of. She was shoved into an ambulance, the springboard was put up, and she was driven to the insane asylum on Blackwell's Island. Now she is inside the madhouse. When finally at Blackwell's Island, she was ready to fulfill her mission. But in spite of the knowledge of her sanity and the assurance that she would be released in a few days, she was still scared. She had been pronounced insane by five doctors and was now locked up behind the heavy doors and bars of a madhouse. One by one, the women she arrived with were being interviewed and assessed by a nurse by the name of Miss Group. And believe me, you're going to grow to have some strong feelings about Miss Group. There was another doctor that assessed them by the name of Dr. Kinnear. The sickly Tilly Mayard, who had been there to convalesce, tried to plead her case again, but to no avail. She was not insane. At the worst, she had some weakness and depression after being sick. She was there solely because her family didn't want to be responsible for her. As seen in so many cases, women were put in insane asylums because they were a burden or a bother or they upset their husbands or they ran into some troubles in life. And it wasn't just women, it was children and men as well, but the women really got the short end of the stick when it came to this. Now it was time for the older German lady, Mrs. Louise Schantz, who couldn't speak English and was going to have a difficult time discussing her case with the doctor. Now, the nurse, Mrs. Krupp, was German, but she refused to interpret because she was ashamed of her heritage. This ridiculous pride likely had Mrs. Schantz institutionalized for life, without even knowing why she was being held there, without being even able to plead her case. This is a quote from Nellie. Compare this with a criminal who was given every chance to prove his innocence, who would rather not be a murderer and take the chance for life than be declared insane without any hope of escape. Next, Mrs. Fox and then Mrs. Neville were put through the same pathetic routine and convicted. It was then Nellie's turn, and ironically, they were fighting for their lives to get help, to get out, to have a chance. And Nellie was doing her best to stay in, knowing that she would get out, hopefully. It seems that Nellie somehow became a bit of a celebrity in the news. The crazy woman who said she was from Cuba. This is so full of irony because here she was doing an undercover story on the treatment of women with mental illness and was becoming a headline story sight unseen. The doctor recognized her story right away from a Sunday paper and thankfully it wasn't the paper she was working for. Nellie surveyed the room, her surroundings. Looks can be deceiving. The area they were in was like a parlor or a common area. It appeared that the nurses were working hard. It appeared to be very clean and tidy. And, you know, even if the nurses appeared to be a bit stern, it looked like they were hardworking. And as it turned out, this was far from the truth. Shortly after, it was supper time, and she heard the dinner bell, which was really a woman screaming out of the dining room, Get out into the hall! There they all stood, crowded in a cold, 
dingy hallway, shivering, moving back and forth just to stay warm. They were all dressed in threadbare clothing. As Nellie observed, they looked so lost and hopeless. Some were chattering nonsense to invisible persons. Others were laughing or crying aimlessly. Another voice was shouting to them to get moving and to stop at the heater, get in line two by two and stand still. All the while that this was going on, nurses were shoving and pushing and sometimes slapping the woman on their ears. When they finally got into the dining room, there was a mad rush for the tables. Some people were grabbing as many portions as possible, leaving some patients without food. Nellie had food stolen right off her plate. It was mayhem. The food became currency. Trades were made. Fights were started. It was a free-for-all. Although there were some patients who helped some of the other more sickly women get food, and those women were usually the ones that had fallen through the cracks and were not needing hospitalization, but were stuck there nonetheless. When dinner time was deemed over, the women were directed to a lineup in twos again and marched back to the sitting room. It was eventually bedtime. Nellie was locked up in a very cold room on a bed that was hard and lumpy with a big lump in the middle and drooping at both ends, kind of like sleeping on a hill. She had a thin nightgown and one sheet and a small woolen blanket that either covered the upper or lower body, but not both. The nurses would come into the room at all hours doing head checks. They would be loud and gruff and the metal door and its padlock and all its noise would wake the dead. And the only thing in the room was Nellie and the bed. Nellie began to think that if there was a fire, the woman would perish, as they would have no time to unlock every room. Nellie would go on to make recommendations later about having a long bar that when engaged would open or close doors all at once, just like they were using in Sing Sing. Yeah, Sing Sing was a safer place. I've given you a little glimpse about how things were for her first day at Blackwell's. I'm going to delve in a little deeper now. One of the first things that she had to have the next day was a bath. Patients were given an ice cold bath once a week. It was a horrible event, most definitely the cause of much illness and spread of disease, not to mention the cruelty in which it was done. I'm going to read what Nellie wrote because she best describes it. Once a week, the patients are given a bath and that is the only time they see soap. On bath day, the tub is filled with water and patients are washed, one after the other, without a change of water. This is done until the water is really thick and then is allowed to run out and the tub is refilled without being washed. The same towels are used on all women and those with eruptions on their face and body as well as those without. The healthy patients fight for a change of water, but they are compelled to submit to the dictates of the lazy, tyrannical nurses. Their dresses are seldom changed oftener than once a month. If the patient has a visitor, I've seen the nurses hurry her out and change her dress before the visitor comes in. This gives the appearance of careful and good management. Oh, I can't even imagine. When she described the water as thick, oh, yeah, horrible. For the patients who would refuse to get into the filthy tub or feared the bath, they would get beaten, humiliated, almost to the point of being drowned. For the patients that were too infirm to suffer these baths, they were at the mercy and the kindness of other patients to bathe them. After the bath, the women would be cold and damp all day because when they got out of it, they would just throw their nightgown back on, not giving them a chance to dry 
properly. And as I mentioned, it was a very cold and damp place. Just another way for them to get sick, not to mention the cruelty of the behavior. At breakfast time, as I mentioned before, the woman would be lined up two by two like animals and had to wait for up to 45 minutes to enter the dining room. And they were to be quiet. They couldn't talk among each other or move around. They had to stand still. And they were served a thin gruel and bread and bitter tea, after which they would be lined up again. After breakfast, Nellie was enlightened as to who kept the hospital so clean. It was not the nurses, as she once thought, and even admired for their hard work. No, it was the patients who did all the scrubbing and cleaning. After the chores, the woman would be taken for a walk, sometimes. The nurses were often too lazy and unkind to take these women out for some fresh air and exercise. Let's just face it, many of the women were too unwell to even manage it. They would be lined up again, two by two, given a dirty thin shawl and a white straw hat to wear, and taken for a walk around the grounds of the building, but they were not allowed to go on the grass or enjoy the nature. On the first walk, Nellie saw a group of women being guarded by Amazon-sized nurses. These women were being marched around. They were very mentally unwell. Their clothes and skin were incredibly filthy. They were considered to be the most violent on the island. They were housed in the most dreaded building in the hospital, called the Lodge. I will use Nellie's words to tell you more about the Lodge and the treatment of the women who resided within its walls. Quote, some were yelling, some were cursing, others were singing or praying or preaching as the fancy struck them. A long cable rope fastened to wide leather belts, and these belts were locked around the waists of 52 women. At the end of the rope was a heavy iron cart, and they would pull around women who could not walk. Sometimes they even wore straight jackets. End of quote. After the walk, it would be lunchtime, and as per usual, the woman would be ravenous, starving or unable to eat at all. Some women were so sickly and malnourished that they couldn't manage the food. Some were very old and didn't have teeth or couldn't chew, likely because they lost them due to malnutrition, and they couldn't chew the tough meat and bread. At lunch, sometimes they were given soup, but it was nothing more than the horrible meat and potatoes tossed into some water. They were never allowed to use utensils, so they had to eat with their hands. Nellie would do her best to eat some bread or drink some of the bitter tea to keep her strength off. Oftentimes, the food was contaminated with insects or spoiled. Sometimes the superintendent of the hospital, Dr. Dent, would grace the halls, giving the occasional, how do you do? Or how are you today? But he cared not to hear their answers. He would walk quickly through. If the patients were able to get his attention and speak to him about the conditions, they were beaten terribly by the nurses. After lunch, they were forced to occupy a sitting room. They had to sit on hard, wooden, and straight-back chairs. They were not allowed to read. There were no books, no activities. They weren't allowed to lie down or wander around. They just had to sit still in this cold and frigid room with minimal clothes. They were offered no stimulation unless they were being antagonized by the staff. There was a 70-year-old elderly blind woman who they liked to terrorize, who nurse Krupp liked to terrorize. And here is the account as written by Nellie. Although the halls were freezing cold, that old woman had no more clothing on than the rest of us, which I have described. When she was brought into the sitting room and placed on a hard bench, she cried, Oh, what are you doing with me? I am so cold. Why can't I stay in bed or have a shawl? And then she would get up and endeavor to feel her way to leave the room. 
Sometimes the attendants would jerk her back to the bench, and again they would let her walk and heartlessly laugh when she bumped against a table or the edge of benches. At one time, she said the heavy shoes which Charity provides hurt her feet, and she took them off. The nurses made two patients put them on her again, and when she did it several times, they fought against having them on. I counted seven people at her once, trying to put her shoes on. The old woman then tried to lie down on the bench, but they pulled her up again. Oh, give me a pillow and pull the covers over me, she would say. At this, I saw Miss Group sit down on her and run her cold hands all over the old woman's face and down the inside of the neck of her dress. At the old woman's cry, she laughed savagely, as did the other nurses, and she repeated her cruel actions. Forget Nurse Ratched. Enter Nurse Group. The lengths of those days were unimaginably long. They seemed never-ending. Anything outside of this monotony was exciting. They looked forward to the boat to arrive to see what new patients were coming. One day a woman by the name of Urena Little Page was brought in. This woman thought she was 18 years old when in fact she was 33. The nurses would tease her ceaselessly about this. They would bully her until she began to yell or cry. And once she did that, they would begin to scold her, tell her to keep quiet. And when she grew more hysterical, they would pounce on her and slap her face and knock her head around repeatedly. This would make her cry even more, so they began to choke her. They would drag her into a closet and wrap their fingers around her neck and choke her until finally she quieted. Later, she would come out with finger bruises all around her neck. After Eurina was returned to the sitting room, they caught a hold of an old gray-haired woman by the name of Mrs. Grady. She was mentally unwell and talked continuously to herself. She never spoke very loud. And at this time, she was sitting harmlessly chattering to herself, and then they grabbed her and she cried out, For God's sake, ladies, don't let them beat me. Shut up, you hussy, Nurse Group said, as she caught the old woman by her gray hair and dragged her shrieking and pleading from the room. She was also then taken into the closet, and her cries grew lower and lower until they ceased. The nurse came back and said, Settle that old fool down for a while. Nellie told some of the doctors what happened, and they did nothing about it. Another woman that they harassed was a little old petite German woman by the name of Matilda. She was generally quiet, but had some moments of dementia and confusion. She would talk into the steam heaters or get up on a chair and talk out the windows. They took great amusement in teasing her. Nellie saw the nurses take the old woman aside and say, I've got to tell you a secret. But she would go to whisper in her ear, but instead they would spit in her ear. Matilda would just wipe away the spittle and say nothing. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I think spitting on a person is one of the most vile animalistic things that you can do. It just makes me enraged when I hear that someone does that to another person. I don't think you could be a more lower, weaselly scum of the earth to do something like that. Anyway, next time I'll tell you how I really feel. <laughs> Jeez. Ugh, okay. Next, Nellie met a woman by the name of Louise. She was also a German lady who had been sick with fever, and she thought that the spirits of her dead parents were with her. She stated that she wanted to die and wouldn't eat or drink or talk. The doctor would pinch her violently until she did. On another day, a very unwell psychotic woman arrived on the island. She had to settle. She was hard to settle. So nurse group beat her into submission and gave her a black eye. When asked by the doctor if the patient had arrived with his black eye before getting there, the nurse said, yes. Bunch of cowards. 
Melanie only ever heard the nurses speak in cold and abusive ways to the patients unless it was to scold, bully, or tease them. One of the most cruel things that the patients had to suffer was the flaunting of good, nutritious food in front of them. The nurses were fed separately from the patients. Plates of raisins and grapes and apples and crackers and other healthy, tasty foods were delivered to the floor and eaten in front of the patients. Nellie generally had a difficult time sleeping, and one night a nurse and doctor forced Nellie to take a large dose of laudanum, which is like opium, if not opium, if I can remember. They told her she could have it by needle or mouth, so she took it by mouth and vomited it up afterwards. She refused to be drugged. There was another patient by the name of Mrs. Cotter who told Nellie a horrible story of abuse. Mrs. Cotter was a pretty and delicate little woman and on one day she thought she saw her husband coming up the walk to get her. She jumped up with excitement and ran to meet him. It was not her husband. And for this, she was taken to a place called The Retreat. And this is her account. Quote, The remembrance of that is enough to make me mad. For crying, the nurses beat me with a broom handle and jumped on me, injuring me internally so that I shall never get over it. Then they tied my hands and feet and throwing a sheet over my head, twisted it tightly around my throat so I could not scream, and then put me into a bathtub filled with cold water. They held me under until I gave up every hope and became senseless. At other times, they took hold of my ears and beat my head on the floor and against the wall. Then they pulled out my hair by the roots so that it will never grow again. Mrs. Cotter showed Nellie the dents in her head and the ball spots where they had taken her hair out by the handful. And then she admitted that she saw much worse treatment done to other patients Thankfully, Mrs. Cotter's husband did arrive and she was discharged. Nellie met another woman who had come from the dreaded and horrific lodge where the rope gang were from. Her name was Bridget McGinnis. Nellie felt that she was completely sane. Bridget had been on the rope gang. When Nellie said the rope gang, she was referring to the very sick and mentally unwell women who were dragged around the grounds all linked up together. This is Bridget's account. Quote, the beatings I got there were something dreadful. I was pulled around by the hair, held under the water until I strangled, and I was choked and kicked. The nurses would put a quiet patient on the lookout to see if doctors and outsiders were approaching. It was hopeless to complain to the doctors because they said it was their imagination of their diseased brains, and besides, they would get another beating for telling. They would hold patients underwater and threaten to leave them to die if they did not promise to not talk to the doctors. We would all promise because we knew that the doctors would not help us. Among other beatings, she also got broken ribs. It was terribly dirty there, and the stench was awful. In the summer, flies would swarm the place. The food there, if you can believe it, was worse than on the wards. She told a story of another young girl. Quote, she had been sick and fought against being put in such a dirty place. One night the nurses took her, and after beating her, they had held her naked in a cold bath, then they threw her on a bed. In the morning, they found the girl dead. The doctor said that she died of convulsions, and that was all that was done. She died an abused and sickly girl. End of quote. In the lodge, they wanted the patients sedated as much as possible so that they didn't have to care for them. They would inject them with so much morphine and chloral hydrate that the patients were made crazy. Bridget said, quote, I have seen the patients wild for water from the effect of the drugs, and the nurses would refuse it to them. I've heard women beg a whole night for one drop and it was not given them. I myself cried for water until my mouth was so parched and dry that I couldn't speak." End of quote. 
They would lock up the bathroom and they would stop them from getting water. Nellie was transferred to what was considered a more quiet ward. Nellie was moved into a room with six other women and locked in at night. One of the patients was homicidal, so that was very frightening. So she didn't sleep much. One day when they went down for dinner, they heard a weak little cry in the basement and everyone seemed to notice it. And it was not long until they knew what it was. There was a baby down there. Yes, a baby. Think of it. A little innocent baby born into such a chamber of horrors. I can imagine nothing more terrible. After 10 days at Blackwell's Island, lawyer Peter A. Hendricks arrived to have Nellie released. After arriving home, having a good meal, a bath, and change of clothes, and some much-needed sleep, Nellie was on a mission to expose what was going on at Blackwell's insane asylum. Upon leaving, this is what she wrote. Quote, For ten days I have been one of them. Foolishly enough, it seemed intensely selfish to leave them there to their sufferings. I felt a desire to help them by sympathy and presence. But only for a moment. The bars were down and freedom was sweeter to me than ever. Soon after she left Blackwell's, she was summoned to appear before a grand jury. She was more than happy to do it. She had a lot to say. She really wanted to help the woman she left behind. She knew that she couldn't get them out, but she could influence the powers that be to improve their life. The jurors were very receptive. She spoke of her whole journey from the temporary home of women up until her release from Blackwell's. Assistant DA Herman M. Davis conducted the examination. The jurors requested that she accompany them on a visit to the island, and she gladly agreed. Unfortunately, it was leaked to the hospital that an investigation was going to take place. So, of course, the nurses had plenty of time to stage the institution for it to appear to be a well-managed, safe, clean, and therapeutic environment. And this was, of course, contrary to how the hospital actually was. The trip to the island was vastly different this time around. The boat was clean and new, and they said that conveniently the other one was being repaired. Some of the nurses were examined by the jury, and they made contradictory statements to one another, as well as to Nellie's story. Dr. Dent, the superintendent, completely copped out by saying that he wasn't aware of anything and that no one had told him anything. Then he acted like he was really ready to dig in for change and that he went as far as to fire a nurse who acted as a lookout to cover up the terrible hospital. Wow, he really stuck his neck out there. <laughs> now, the patient Ann Neville, who was brought in with Nellie, was brought down to tell her story. Ann Neville spoke of Nellie, who was very kind in contrast to the staff at the hospital. She spoke of the living conditions and the cruel treatment, and that coincidentally, things suddenly improved not long after Nellie left. Of course, when the jurors were taken around to the hospital for the inspection, it was immaculate, with barrels of salt in the kitchen and beautifully baked bread on display. No fault could be found. This hospital was full of cruel people who didn't just behave that way because they were degenerates and nothing else. They intentionally abused and covered themselves afterwards. This wasn't brainless brutality. It was calculated to create maximum misery. Nellie sought out the woman that she had lived with and developed a kinship with to see if they could tell their stories. Chillingly, most of them could not be found. Mary Hughes had gone missing. They apparently had no idea where she was. Apparently, Bridget McGinnis and Rebecca Farron had been transferred to another ward. The German girl, Margaret, was not to be found. 
Louise was transferred to other quarters. The French woman who was sane and healthy when Nellie left was apparently now dying of paralysis and they weren't allowed to see her. Tilly Mayard was unrecognizable in her deterioration. It chills me to think what happened to these women. Where were they really? Did they send them all to the lodge? Were they killed? Were they put into even worse conditions, all because they knew Nellie? Ugh. The scary thing is that anything could have happened to them. Hopefully they were just lying so that they couldn't tell their stories and they were okay. So, of course, the place was in perfect condition. Patients appeared well cared for, with sufficient clothing, good food, and kind treatment from all the caring, well-managed staff. The women who could speak of the horrors were conveniently gone. Poof. Nellie was convinced that she would look the fool. This was not the case. The jury believed her and advised to make all the changes she proposed, and the committee appropriated a million dollars more than ever given annually to Blackwell's Island Insane Asylum. I'll end this story with Nellie's words. Since my experiences in Blackwell's Island Insane Asylum were published in the World newspaper, I have received hundreds of letters in regards to it. The edition containing my story long since ran out, and I have been prevailed upon to allow it to be published in book form to satisfy the hundreds who are yet asking for copies. I'm happy to be able to state as a result of my visit to the asylum and the exposures consequent thereon that the city of New York has appropriated a million more per annum than ever before to take care of the insane. So I have at the very least the satisfaction of knowing that the poor unfortunates will be better cared for because of my work. Gotta love Nellie Bly. She was one badass woman way ahead of her time. If you're interested in knowing anything more about her, I'd like to tell you a few more things she did quickly. She worked undercover to expose baby trafficking. She went as far as to purchase a baby to expose all the horrors that were going on with that. She looked into organ dispensaries and hospitals. One day after having her tonsils out, she thought, where do my tonsils go? So she exposed limbs and organs and stuff where they were actually being taken after surgeries. So she improved the conditions with that. She worked undercover as a servant woman to expose the treatment of these ladies. She worked in a factory making boxes, again, to expose the conditions of factory workers. She went undercover in a place called Magdalen Home for pregnant girls to expose the treatment of them there. She lived in a New York tenement building. She looked into the goings-on in drug dispensaries. And she also worked undercover to expose criminals. An incredible, incredible woman. There is so much more to know about her. So, you know, check her out. Nellie Bly, amazing woman. So thank you for listening to this story today. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it. Next up is the suture room. And this is a very, very special suture room. See, I had a contest for Patreon supporters to tell me some of their suture room stories. And there were two winners. So I am going to read their stories to you right now. Okay? So come on in, get on the stretcher, and have a lie down. As you know, there's comfy pillows and a comfy blankie. And this time, I snuck down to Tim Hortons and got you 20 Timbits, 
in a tea and a Diet Pepsi. Just a little variety there. Have what you wish. So now relax as I dim the lights and tell you two awesome stories from two members of the STAT 911 crew. You ready? Here we go. This first story is from Ronnie Ball. Her dad was a paramedic in the 1980s. Fair warning, it involves a sensitive subject matter. So you know. Okay, here we go. My dad was working with an enthusiastic new recruit. They were called out to a house with a possible suicide. They arrived at the house, but didn't know exactly what they were going into. Dad advised enthusiastic new recruit to be cautious walking into the house. However, enthusiastic new recruit chose to run in and try to save the day. A split second later, a terrified cry issued from the house as dad arrived at the door. There had indeed been a suicide. A person had hung themselves from a ceiling fan and enthusiastic new recruit had run directly into the arms of the rotating body. Enthusiastic new recruit was more cautious after that. Holy crap. I, I can't even imagine, imagine running into a house and embracing a deceased body. How scary is that? Ronnie, thank you for that story and for the nightmares that I'm going to be having over the next couple of months. <laughs> anyway, thank you. This next Suchi Room story comes from Emma Clayton. Set the scene. Not long out of nursing school, I got a job in the operating theaters. My first allocation for a couple of months. A 21-year-old male patient came in through the recovery after an emergency circumcision, after tearing it during sexual activity. Fortunately, the sordid details of exactly what happened to cause the tear, one can only wonder. Anyhow, he started bleeding from the wound and it wouldn't stop. Got the doctor back to check it out and decided that the patient would need a surgical repair. Now here's the catch. He had had a drink, so he had to wait four hours to have another anesthetic. So what about the bleeding penis? Me, being the least experienced RN in the recovery, being new to the role, had to apply pressure and hold bandages around the penis for the better part of four hours. <laughs> Only being relieved once for a toilet stop. Needless to say, it was rather awkward. <laughs> and I was 23 at the time. Oh, Emma. Anyway, we spent the next four hours chatting about anything but the situation going on between his legs. But the story doesn't end there. About a month later, I was out on a Friday night at a local club. When who do I see? The penis patient. <laughs> Immediately, he rushes over to me laughing and saying, You're the nurse that was holding my dick in the hospital. Yep, that word. His friends treated me like a minor celebrity. It was rather weird. From time to time, I would bump into him at the club or at the shopping mall. Well, Emma, I hope you didn't bump into his uh, area. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, great story, Emma. Great story, Ronnie. Thank you guys for submitting those. Really, really, really enjoyed them. Hey, if anyone else out there has an interesting story that they want to share, drop me a line at my email, kwick at stattails.com. 
I would love to hear from you. Before we finish today, I'd like to play two promos for two of my most favorite podcasts. Let's start with 36 Times. Hey, Krista. Hey, Lily. Did you know in your lifetime you'll pass a murderer 36 times? I did. And you know why? Why? Because we're 36 Times, a Canadian true crime podcast which covers crimes in the Great White North. Oh, right! Every episode, we focus on a major crime and then we lighten things up with a kooky one. We talk about everything from the criminal justice system itself to animals arguably not doing what they should, bringing you true crime with a shot of maple syrup. Catch our episodes bi-weekly on iTunes or your favorite, that's favorite with a U, podcast app. If you haven't checked out Krista and Lily, run. Don't walk to iTunes and subscribe. They're awesome. Now I'd like to introduce you to Craig and Maria from Texas True Terrors. Can't get enough true crime? Do you enjoy movies based on a true story? I'm Craig. And I'm Maria. We decided to merge the two and talk about true crime and the movies based on them. I know the real story and have done all the research, but I haven't seen the movie. And I've only seen the movie and know nothing about what actually happened. We've got cases and movies from every end of the spectrum. Some movies are great and others, not so much. So come on over to Texas True Terrors and give us a listen. Learn a little something and maybe get a laugh or two along the way. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, at Texas True Terrors. And you can find us on Twitter at Texas Terrors. If you like what you hear, rate and review us on iTunes, and it'll help us keep this thing going. Bye, y'all. That's another great podcast. Please go check those guys out and listen sub and listen seriously i do not promote what i don't love and while we're on the subject of love i would really love it if you guys could go to itunes and leave me a rating or review to help get my show out there and heard by the masses really appreciate it thank you so that wraps up another episode from stat shocking traumas and treatments where sometimes it's the cure that kills you. <laughs>